We are returning now to Job, and last time we dealt with the doctrinal issues of the persons, uh, the sons of God, Satan, and Yahweh, the Lord upon the throne. Uh, I want to read again as we're dealing with this heavenly scene, uh, both in chapter 1 and chapter 2, prior to coming back and dealing with the trial of Job and his initial response. Uh, so again, reading in Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord, and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for naught? Have you not made an hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth your hand now, and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only upon himself put not forth your hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And then after the initial trial of Job, we return again to a heavenly scene in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord, and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil? And still he holds fast his integrity, although you moved me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man has will he give for his life. But put forth now your hand, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but save his life. And verse 7 goes on as it did before. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord. So, we theologically outline the heavenly characters. We see how this conflict of gods takes shape now in this narrative. The angelic realm, by the way, is seen as spectators to the grace of God and seen as ready servants to do the will of God. This seems to be what Peter taught in 1 Peter 1.12, that he they the angels desire to look into things, that we are spectator of a spectacle to angels in Ephesians 3.10, according to Paul. And here, they are do, ready to do the servant, 
the, the will as servants, and the warfare of Satan is brought to bear also in this text. So we pick up the narrative after dealing theologically with these things. A third consecutive imperfect continues this unfolding scene. There was a day, and Satan also came, and Yahweh said unto Satan. Now, the obvious subordination of Satan to our Lord is noted here again. Satan, apparently being uncalled, waits to be recognized by the sovereign before he speaks. The Lord asks, from where do you come? Satan then responds by bringing up his prowling in the earthly realm, where he seeks to devour, according to Peter much later in the New Testament, where he seeks to devour whom he will. It is God that, in his curse of the serpent, has made him to so crawl in this realm in humility. We remember the curse of the serpent in Genesis 3, where the serpent was more subtle than any beast that God had created. And after the serpent caused man to sin, he says, Upon your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And among those dead in their sins, he established kind of a mock kingdom of opposition. Ephesians 1 tells us we were dead in trespasses, or Ephesians 2, rather. We were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air who now works in the children of disobedience. So Satan is, in a sense, either boasting of his victories here, when he says, I'm going to and fro in the earth, or his intent is to bring an accusation, something he had found, maybe even against Job. And if that's true, God will be preemptive in his reply due to his foreknowledge. Satan answers as if he had something in his seeking for which he could challenge God. And God's not ignorant of his intent. So, just getting on in this narrative, Satan replies in a fourth consecutive imperfect verb. From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. He was going in this direction and that, literally is what the words mean, and apparently claiming it as his battleground. The reflexive form of the verb to walk, to walk of or for oneself, seems to indicate some form of challenge to God in these, in these words. The same verbs used of David when he was numbering his armies in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 2. It says he went up and down. It was ground he will be reluctant to cede, for he's going to come back in chapter 2 and claim the same activity in the next chapter, almost verbatim. The devil's claims have not changed, and we're not ignorant, according to Paul, 2 Corinthians 2.11, of his devices. Uh, Benson said, The Targum, after the words from going to and fro in the earth, very significantly adds, to try the works of the children of men. From which it appears that the ancient Jews understood this account of temptation of Job in a literal sense. This representation teaches us that Satan, 
the great apostate spirit is entirely under the dominion of the sovereign Lord of all things and not suffered to act without control, that he is chiefly confined to the limits of this earth agreeably, which is why he is called in the New Testament the prince of this world by Christ in John twelve thirty one. That was a quote from Benson. He is going about, again, the words of Peter, to subjugate as a lion to devour. He went to make war, John said in his Revelation twelve seventeen, to conquer. He claims this realm as his circuit and all in it. And he repeated as much to Christ in the temptation in Luke chapter 4, 5 through 8, where Christ reprimanded him, or reminded rather him, reprimanded and reminded him of his subordination to Yahweh in all things. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. This, But the words of Satan here in Job sets the stage for this warfare and challenge of God who will be the victor. Because the earth is his. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Satan is a usurper. No matter how large the circuit of Satan seems, God will confound him with the weak and foolish things, and he will confound them here with Job. God will, with his remnant, conquer. The narrative continues with the next consecutive imperfect verb. Yahweh responds to Satan. He literally states, Have you set my servant Job to mind? There's little more glorious for any of us to be called than God's servants or ministers. Christ reminded us of that in Matthew 23, 11. The greatest of you will be servant of all. But listen how God speaks of Job. God delighted in Job as he delights in all his repentant recipients of his grace. There's joy in heaven of one sinner coming to repentance. And it pleases him to use such for his glory. God delights in us. Here God goes to war with his elect as his soldiers. And what a glory that is. We are his servants. He provokes Satan with his remnant. There is none like him, God says to Satan. Satan may have his legions, but God has his chosen remnant that Satan cannot have. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. What makes Job unique here? What makes Job unique is not the secondary blessings. What is God challenging him with? What makes Job unique is the grace of the very first verse of this book. God delights to repeat them verbatim. And even after the devil tests them, God will repeat them again in chapter 2, verse 3. This is what God is, holds up. The grace of God that he gave us is sufficient. The grace of God will persevere. Here it is the source of delight in the saint, God's delight in the saint. By grace we are approved of God. 
The sufficiency of grace, then, is, like I said many times already, the sufficiency of grace becomes the point of God's attack. After these graces are tried, they continue to be the point of God's attack. God's grace to us is God's offense in this world. Therefore, Yahweh will later add these words. And still, verse ch chapter 2, and still he holds fast his integrity, although you move me against him to destroy him without cause. Yet, still, God says, yet still and even despite the attempts of the enemy to undermine the work of God in God's servant, the servant stands. The conflict here is God's, and God is the victor through his grace. The perseverance is directed and affected by God through all trials and testing. I love the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, and I love here to see how my God delights in it. Still, he says, our God said in, in utter provocation, the hippo participle that is used here has this causative sense to it. Still, he is caused to be strong despite your attacks. Still, he is being integricus. Grace reigns unto life. Romans 5, 20 and 21. Psalm 25, verse 21. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me. <laughs> That's a prayer that we have. Let your integrity and your uprightness preserve me. Again, the just man walks in his integrity. The just, like Job, who lived by faith, will fully and finally persevere. Though our God should through us be provoked to move in battle against his foe, we are more than conquerors in him who loved us. Romans 8.37 God will allow the enticing of his own, their entering into the fray, he will allow it. He'll bring that forth because we are part of his war. And we honor him and such. Note that God is the first cause of the suffering here in chapter 2 as well, in the life of the saint. It is for his glory. He moved against Job because he was moving with Job. It is God that ultimately came up against Job, though Satan had no cause or purpose to accuse him, is how we read these words. Yet God brought him to destruction. The text does not intend that God had no reason or cause, but only that Satan had no reason to provoke. God's cause is why we're reading this book, after all. His move against God through Job was literally in vain. To destroy him without cause, you move me to destroy him without cause, or literally in vain, or uselessly. The Septuagint continues a reading to that effect. Job is a casualty now in God's just war, and Job will be rewarded and honored as such. Satan has allowed, is allowed to go on a, rather, on a fool's campaign against God's mighty fortress of grace. Let us then go back and look at this vain provocation of Satan to see also how he repeats his errors. Our text says in chapter 1, then, said, and an, then answered Satan the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for naught? 
The narrative continues with the next consecutive imperfect verb. Satan responds to Yahweh. That is, the setting forth of Job as unlike those under the dominion of Satan. So God challenges him with Job, and Job and Satan responds. Satan declares this. Job is only such because he gains all these secondary blessings. The shot across the bow is that. It is not genuine grace, but gratuitously—I can't speak—gratuitously shown. Job fears God. Satan's summary of God's grace for a cause. He is not doing it for no substantial reason. He does not fear God for the sake of God alone. I do not agree with completely with the assertion of Ellicott, but I want to quote him real quick. Ellicott said. The object of the book is thus introduced, which is to exhibit the integrity of human conduct under the worst possible trial and to show man a victor over Satan. Now, I must disagree with Ellicott here. The object of the book is here introduced. He is correct about that. But the object is whether the genuine grace of God given to man will ultimately triumph. Whether God, through his elect, will be victorious over Satan. God is not honored by his own because he has a bigger carrot on a stick that is more appealing to, than Satan's. <coughs> God's grace triumphs for more genuine reasons. Satan says, It is the secondary blessings that, causes, that, that cause these graces. Have you not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side? Have you not blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land? And when he proved to, and when he failed to prove that, he adds in chapter two, skin for skin, yea, all that a man has will he give for his life. Satan's complaint first is that God had personally protected him from testing, hedged him. As we recount this claim of Satan, we should examine ourselves in this light. Do you love and revere God only because you're blessed by him? Consider unfaithful Israel, Hosea 2.8. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold which they prepared for Baal. Job's faith was not as such. God did, however, bless Job as he does all his own. Apparently, Satan had previously attempted to, at to act against Job and against these very things that he cites, and that's why he speaks. Satan speaks in battle terms. The idea here is that, according to Barnes, of making an enclosure around Job and his possessions to guard them from danger. And thus the Septuagint renders it to make a defense around, to circumvallate or enclose as a camp is in war. Thus said Barnes about the text. He himself is hedged by God protected by God. His house is also hedged by God. All of his possessions that are around him are hedged by God. All 
that Job puts his hand to is made by God to prosper. We think of Psalm 1, blessed is the man, and uh, whatsoever he does shall prosper. Uh, God has blessed his livestock so that they are literally, in this text, bursting forth or breaking through with offspring. This reminds us of God's blessing to Jacob under Laban in Genesis 32.12. God caused his cattle to burst forth. When Satan is proved wrong, he upped the ante. Keel and his associates stated, The meaning of the words of Satan rightly understood is this. One gives up one's skin to preserve one's skin. One endures pain on a sickly part of the skin for the sake of saving the whole skin. One holds up the arm, as Rashi suggests, to avert the fatal blow from the head. The second clause is climactic. A man gives skin for skin, but for his life, his highest good, he willingly gives up everything, without exception, that can be given up, and life itself still retained, thus said Kill about this text. So apparently Satan used this bartering idiom, skin for skin. I used to watch wrestling as a kid, and I remember the million-dollar man saying, Everything has a price, or everybody has a price. Satan is pretty much saying that. Satan is claiming quid pro quo. Job still has quality of life. We've taken all of his children, we've taken all of his possession, but he still has quality of life, quid pro quo. And Satan claims that for that life, he would give anything up to maintain. Uh, Barnes said something a little different about this text. A man willingly gives up another skin, life for his own skin, life. So Job might bear the loss of his children and so on with equanimity so long as he remained unhurt himself. But when touched in his own person, he would renounce God. Thus, the first skin means the other's skin, that is, body. The second skin, one's own, as in Exodus twenty-one twenty-eight. Those are Barnes' take on this. And I'd, I'll leave it up to you whether or not you prefer Barnes or Keel in their various point. But the point stands. What would it take for you to quit God? Satan insinuates that Job still had what was really important and would do anything to keep it, even curse God. Our life, no matter what its quality, is an opportunity for us to honor our God. Real discipleship forsakes one's own life also, said Christ in Luke 14, 26. Satan challenges God to allow his claim to be tested. Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to his face. And when that failed, he comes back in chapter 2 and says, Put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. The craft of Satan is seen here. And repeated attempts highlights his ultimate defeat because ultimately he is defeated. Grace stands, fate, Satan loses. Complementary infinitives of request are used. The devil realizes that all power is God's. Stretch out your hand and touch or strike. 
This is the normal euphemism for God pouring out his wrath, as in Isaiah 5.25. Stretch out your hand, pour out your wrath, strike. Leave nothing that is his untouched. A hypothetical particle is also introduced. It introduces a logical syllogism. If you stretch out and smite everything he has, then to your face he will curse. The logic of the trial is simple but false, seeing that it is actually the grace of God given to Job that is to be tried. To any that have are that are absent of God's grace, such would be true. If God touched them, they probably would curse. We find many instances of that in the Bible. Men naturally curse God anytime things go wrong. Stub your toe in the middle of the night, what do people do? <laughs> here, the, here the same phenomenon we already saw uh, is noted, and it occurs again. The word actually in the Hebrew text is bless. He will bless you. Uh, but it's used here in a sense of cursing in both speeches of Satan. And that, again, we saw that last time, is likely either A, to scribes or the original authors not wishing to connect the word curse with God and using the word bless instead when God is the object. But it also just may be a euphemism for bidding farewell to or esteeming something lightly or departing from something, saying adieu. The second speech differs only in its object of testing. Same complementary of the infinitives. Touch, strike, to his bone, meaning his self, his strength, and to his body. In other words, his whole person should be touched with his violence. Nothing should be held back. <clears throat> Satan desires Job to be tested to the very limits any man can maintain in their own strength. What would it take, again, I ask you, Dear listener, what would it take for you to quit or to be overcome? Paul said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Jesus, Speaking of Jesus in John 6, many disciples departed when his words became too hard. Without the grace of God, no one would be willing to forsake all, as Christ said in Luke 14.33. But it is the integrity of God's grace that is being tested or questioned. Thank God for his grace. Then coming to the end of this heavenly scene, God responds with his active and sovereign decree. We see God as sovereign again in this text. What happens to Job flows from God's manifest decree. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only upon himself put not forth your hand. And again, after the first trial, behold, he is in your hand, but save his life. These are the last consecutive and perfect, and, and they mark the end of the secession of this narrative. First, God determines to allow Satan provisional authority over Job. In the first scene, it is over his property and his children and all that he has. The second scene, it is over his very person. Job is 
God's to do with as he pleases. And you and I are God's to do with as he pleases. Don't forget that. Satan requested the same thing later about Peter. Jesus says, Satan has desired to have you, Peter, in Luke 21, 31 through 34. The word behold introduces each decree. Behold, God as sovereign will use Satan as he wills as well for our good and his glory. Second, God limits all that the devil may do. He says to Satan, go only this far and no further. Even in rebellion, Satan, in his rebellion that is, his proud waves are limited by the rule of God. In the first thing, Satan was limited to Job's possessions. Secondary blessings and that was placed in his hands and he took them as he will. In the second, he was limited by being unable to take his life. In each, God demonstrated his sovereignty. Satan obeyed, had to obey, but he also thought in his cunning that he had all that he needed, and he failed. Thus, each scene in heaven ends with Satan going forth as the willing servant of God, even in his rebellion. And so each scene ends with, So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord. Before I close for today, as we finish this heavenly scene, we should say a word about grace. Satan will one day be given leave to test and even take the life of another. That's Christ. The one, the very Yahweh on the throne. There is nothing in the scene that would not also be the experience of Christ one day who was tempted in all points like us, yet without sin. Satan would test him in the wilderness and on to the cross as he filled Judas's heart to bring him to that point. And that would be the final and central victory over the serpent. After this, Satan will simply slip away from this narrative. Defeated, but we reckon not finally defeated, but he will be, in that sense, finally defeated by the cross of our Lord. And because of that, the day will come when Satan is cast down and will be the accuser of the brethren no more. I hope you receive something from the word of God today. Lord bless.